Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us is a man who spent 18 years in a Major League Baseball jersey. Most of that time, it was that of the Boston Red Sox. He also played for the New York Yankees, was a key part of the 96 World Series win over the Atlanta Braves. He's also recorded uh, his 3,000th Major League hit as a member of the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. For two decades, he was a perennial contender for the American League batting title. With 12 straight All-Star appearances, he is third only to Brooks Robinson and George Brett in number of consecutive appearances as a third baseman. In 1997, he ranked number 95 on the Sporting News list of 100 Greatest Baseball Players. He was a nominee for Major League Baseball's All-Century team. It is a thrill to welcome a member of Baseball's Hall of Fame, the only, one and only, Wade Boggs of WLIA Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Wade. Hey, what's going on? Nothing much. We're really thrilled to have you. You know, in doing the research, I found that you were born into a military family as your mom and dad met in 1946 at a military base in Georgia. Your dad served with the Marines in World War II, flew for the Air Force in the Korean War. Your mom piloted mail planes in World War II. And if I'm not mistaken, your great-grandfather, or could be your grandfather, Aaron Boggs, served in the Revolutionary War. Uh, it's interesting because my dad served in World War II. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. And also by the time I came around... He was so far removed from the, the war, he really didn't have many war stories. I'm just wondering, based on that background of yours, you know, did you hear a lot of stories from your parents and about your great-grandfather? Uh, I heard a... Well, my father told me a lot about Guadalcanal. And uh, so, you know, those were great stories sitting on the porch and, and having buddies over for fishing derbies and things like that and him talking about, uh, you know, what it was like on on Guadalcanal fighting the Japanese. So um, not too much about uh, my uh, great-grandfather, but uh, but just, uh, you know, proud of my parents. And, and actually my brother spent uh, two tours in Nam, and my nephew, uh, James, uh, stormed Baghdad. So uh, we've got three generations of Marines right there and who have fought in wars and conflicts. So... Incredible. You know, we've had Warren Moon on, who also came from a military background, and he talked a lot about growing up, moving from place to place. You did as well. You lived in several different places, including Puerto Rico, Savannah, Georgia, before settling in Tampa when you were 11 years old. It's interesting because when we spoke to Warren Moon, the sports is what really helped him acclimate from place to place because whether it's in school you meet new classmates but on the field if you can play sports you're you're accepted right away how important was sports in your being able to make all those moves well i was born in nebraska and uh, only lived there three months so i moved to puerto rico when i was three months old so uh, i lived in puerto rico three years while my father was stationed at ramey air force base in puerto rico and then and then moved to georgia and my father was was stationed at uh, hunter air force base in savannah so I, I, that's where I started my Little League career and, and uh, wound up playing uh, uh, six years in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, and then coming down uh, to Tampa after my father had retired in 69. 
you know, you were also a, a football player in Tampa as well, all-state football player, in fact. You played football till your senior year, then you switched positions from quarterback to avoid uh, injury to protect your baseball career. At what point did you realize that, hey, you know what, I am going to be a baseball player and I, I need to stop playing football for, you know, if I get injured, I'm not going to fulfill my dream. Well, baseball was my first love. I, w- I was a, a good quarterback. I was a, a, uh, had college offers uh, to go play quarterback. Uh, but uh, I, kn- I knew that I was a better baseball player than, than a football player. So uh, my junior year, I made the decision to, uh, to give up being a quarterback. And my senior year, I went to uh, handle all the kicking duties, uh, punts, kickoffs, field goals, extra points, and things of that nature. So... Uh, I, I took a pretty good beat in my junior year and knocked out a couple times and and stitches on the chin and these kinds of things. So that uh, that right there uh, uh, sort of made the decision uh, a lot easier. So with this is AJ Carter. So you batted left, threw right. Not that unusual in baseball. You kicked left. Right. So how did you end up being? You were a left-footed kicker, a left-hand batter. What was weirder? being a right-handed, throwing a baseball, how did that happen, or being the left-footed kicker? Well, actually, I was a left-handed thrower. My dad tied my uh, left hand behind my back to make me throw right-handed, so I'd play more positions. So, um, more or less uh, ambidextrous. I, I uh, hit left-handed, like you said, uh, kick left-footed. Um, played tennis and ping-pong either-handed, so... Um, but uh, when you throw right-handed, you, you have an opportunity to play more positions. Uh, so that was a decision that my father made early on. You, know, you take a look, and you're drafted out of Plant High School in 1976 as a seventh-round draft selection of the Boston Red Sox. Seventh round's incredible when you look at you know, what you've gone on to do. But that was at the advice of veteran scout George Digby. For those in our audience who don't know the name, George Digby worked in the Boston Red Sox organization for more than 60 years. Half of, that, half of the century as a scout. Among his finds were Red Sox, uh, Tom Bolton, Steve Curry, Mike Greenwell, Jody Reed, and Mark Sullivan. The George Digby Award was created by the Red Sox in honor of Digby to recognize annually the scout that has provided outstanding service to the organization. What do you think it is that George saw in you that so many other scouts mixed that he went to the, the Red Sox and say, you have to draft this kid? Probably my bat. Uh, there were, there's, there's been some, uh, I guess, a Kansas City scout. Uh, someone posted his uh, when he scouted me here in Tampa, and uh, it was for two games or something. And uh, it uh, was one of those that, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't draft this kind of guy. And, uh, and he, said a lot, he said a lot of things. But uh, uh, George saw that, uh, that there was something in, in my swing that uh, was conducive to uh, other people he's, he's seen play the game. So, um with the five and a half years in, in the minor leagues and the seasoning that I had, uh, once I got to the big leagues in 82, I was ready. You know, it's interesting because you, you talk about the minor leagues. You way, work your way up the Red Sox minor league ladder, Elmira, Winston-Salem, Bristol, Pawtucket. In Pawtucket, you were part of the longest game in professional baseball history against Cal Ripken Jr. and the Rochester Red Wings. It lasted 33 innings, 8 hours, 25 minutes of playing time. 32 innings were played April 18th and 19th, 1981 in McCoy Stadium in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And a final 33rd inning was played June 23rd, 1981. Pawtucket won the game 3-2. 
you went four for 12 in that game, as well as you're the main reason why that game kept going, as you drove in the tying run in the bottom of the 21st inning after a Rochester run in the top of the inning. What's your most vivid memory of that game? Probably all the cracked bats that we were burning in the dugout uh, to keep ourselves warm. Uh, it was freezing uh, that night, and uh, it was one of those one of those games after about the fifteenth, sixteenth inning that uh, you just sort of looked around and said, "You know, we're, uh, we could play forever, and no one score." And it was just uh, just kept going on and on, and they tried to get a hold of the league president and. Kept calling his house, and and back then we didn't have the the use of cell phones and and things of that nature. So uh, just tried to keep trying to get a hold of him, and and then finally they did, and the last pitch was thrown about uh, four forty that uh, morning. It's very interesting to note too about this game that uh, the start of that game was also delayed thirty minutes due, due to problems with the stadium lights. The game started with 1,740 fans in attendance. When the game was suspended at the end of the 32nd inning, more than eight hours after it began, there were 19 fans left in the stadium. Guess what? Those 19 fans were given either season tickets, tickets or lifetime tickets to the team. That, that's and, and, wild. And they, and they deserved it. They earned it. Either they earned it or they just fell asleep. I, well, I mean, I, I can't imagine well, what if, compels if it was you. that cold. Right, I can't. Right, uh, the players had to be there. I can't. Comp- I don't know what compelled anyone to sit through that eight hours as a fan. Um, you played every infield position in the minors. April tenth, nineteen eighty-two, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. You make your major league debut against the Orioles at first base against Dennis Martinez. What do you remember about your very first major league game? Uh, zero for four, and uh, I, re- I remember that. Uh, uh, the trees in Baltimore had a huge white house in center field, and, and early in the season in, in Baltimore, these trees wouldn't uh, wouldn't fill in, and so the white house sort of came into play. And, and with uh, with Martinez's changeup, uh, it was you really couldn't tell the difference, and, and uh, so it wasn't uh, the kind of debut that uh, that you hoped you would have, but. Uh, uh, one of those times that you you jump in and get your feet wet, and and coincidentally the first major league game that I ever saw, I played in. So, <laughs> wow, wow, that's incredible. Now to say you adjusted well to the major leagues would be a huge understatement. You batted 349 in your rookie year, which would have won the batting title, but you were 121 plate appearances short of the required minimum of 502. Uh, you won the batting title five of the next six years, from 1982 to 88. You hit below 349. Only once, hitting 325 in 84. From 83 to 89, you had seven consecutive seasons in which you had 200 or more hits. American League record for consecutive 200 hit seasons. That was later matched uh, and surpassed by uh, uh, Ichiro. You had six seasons with 200 or more hits, 100 or more runs, 40 or more doubles. Without a doubt, you were the premier contact hitter of your era. Um, you credit mental uh, preparedness techniques, which consisted of visualizing four at-bats each evening before your game. Um, it's interesting because we also have a, a championship boxer in studio who we're going to talk to later. So it, I'm wondering if, if there's a crossover between sports about visualization. Could you explain to our audience what you did you know, to prepare yourself mentally and, and what you visualized each night and how you went about that? A lot, of, a lot of times you just need blinders on, and, and uh, you, you find a little quiet place and, and, and just think about the picture that you're facing and, and uh, the bats that you've had, uh, 
and you can sort of close your eyes and see him wind up and throw a pitch. And you're actually going over at bat, at bat, at bat uh, in your head about, uh, okay, when he throws this, this is, you know, if it's in this area, then you could put a good swing on it. And, and so before the game, you would, you would sit there and, and, and whether I was facing Dave Steve or Jack Morris or Dave Stewart or whomever, it was uh, one of those that uh, when you face a guy numerous amounts of times that uh, you've got a, a pretty good book in your head, and all you have to do is just close your eyes. You know, one of the other things that your, your preparation was legendary for was your love of chicken, using <laughs> chicken to prepare. What was it about chicken, and how do you feel it helped you do better in the games? Well, they, they, the, the, it's, the chicken was the superstition part of it, and, and I had probably 75, 80 superstitions that uh, I went through in the course of a day. So uh, that was one of the things that my pregame meal would be chicken, and it would... Uh, all the superstitions just put you into a, a, a positive frame of mind that, that, that you know at a certain amount of time you, that you're going to be taking ground balls and a certain amount of times you're running wind sprints and a certain amount uh, certain time you're getting dressed. And, and so uh, you just form this pattern and uh, it just snowballs itself. No, it's also interesting, again, you know, with our other guests in studio, uh, Cletus, the Hebrew hammer, Selden, one of your other superstitions, if I'm not mistaken, was you would draw a chai in the batter's box or buy the dirt for the batter's box as well. How did that come about? I used to draw it in Little League, uh, looking at, at comic books, and the back of the comic books had uh, references to uh, uh, symbols, and the symbol for the Hebrew chai sign was good luck. So I would draw it in the dirt. And not being Jewish, but uh, I would draw it in the dirt uh, just to wish myself good luck. And, and that superstition sort of carried over to the big leagues and continued all the way through my career. I need to know what comic book that is, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, you, you probably sold it when you downsized in your house. Maybe. You probably that, had it. I, I don't know what... Uh, you know, Jewish uh, superhero there is in the Marvel Universe. I have to find that out. Um, you know, it's interesting. Your first trip to the World Series was 1986 against the Mets. We have had on this show mostly every single member of that 86 team, and we've asked them where they were at the moment the ball went through Billy Buckner's uh, legs in Game 6. We've even had Oil Cam Boyd and John McNamara from the Red Sox as well. Take us through your vantage point of, in New York history, maybe one of the most famous plays in Mets World Series history. Well, I was at third base and, and having a conversation with Harry Wendelstadt, and he had said that uh, he collects winning third baseman's caps. And, <laughs> and I said, uh, well, it's not over, Harry. And he says, well, look at the board. And it said, congratulations, Boston Red Sox, 1986 World Series champions. And we had, you know, we had uh, one strike away four or five times. And, and uh, so... Then once the infamous play happened, I looked over at Harry and I said, uh, I'll see you tomorrow night. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you Coincidentally, that. we got rained out for the next yep, couple right. nights or what have you. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's one, of those, one of those things that, that you can't blame Billy Buck. I mean, uh, we had our chances. We had, a, we had a big lead in game seven, too. So uh, we let that get away. And uh, you just can't, uh, can't fault one guy. Uh, a, a collection of, uh, you know, it just wasn't our year. 
you'd always get something to happen actually about a month before that, before the end of the regular season. And this week we had the brawl between the Tigers and the Yankees. So I came across something that happened on September 13th, 1986. And you're playing the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. And there was an incident which resulted in a lot of members of the Red Sox charging into the stands. What do you remember about that? And what really triggered everybody pouring in from the team going up to the stands? Well, uh, Spike Owen went back on a ball and, uh, and dove for the ball and, and hit uh, into the tarp that was uh, along the right or along the left field line, and we were attending to Spike Owen and uh, a Yankee fan came and, and basically stole Jimmy's hat off of his head, uh, Jim Rice's hat off his head. So we all chased this guy up into the stands. Next thing we know, we're we're about uh, the first concourse up uh, about <laughs> thirty rows and. Uh, and but we got Jimmy's hat back and uh, everything else uh, just sort of uh, went by the wayside. Did it cost you any suspensions for that? Why would we get suspended? Well, you charge into the stands. That that ha- who was it? Uh, it was uh, run our test right in basketball. Basketball well, charge into the stands. And on top of that, no no one mill buried a fan. No one took a shoe and beat right. them. So right. they got okay. the hat just back. Trying to get the hat back. Exactly. Right. It, wasn't a, it wasn't a. Right. where we started a brawl or exactly. anything like that in the right. stands. Uh, I don't, I, there weren't any punches thrown or anything. We were just trying to mm. find the guy with the Red Sox hat and, and you know, uh, you, wound up getting it back. So You, you take a look at, at, at Boston, and maybe other than Philadelphia, I think it might be the roughest fan base to please in all of Major League Sports. I have to wonder, had your 86 team, one, or even maybe going further back, the 75 team had won. If your time in Boston would have been different, David Price recently took uh, issue with the way Dennis uh, Eckersley criticized him on um, Nesson. Um, you faced your share of criticism, both from the fans and media during your time with the Red Sox. To me, how anyone, a guy who hit 338 in 11 seasons with the Red Sox, could be criticized is beyond me. If you hit 260 over 11 seasons here at the Mets, you're put in the Mets Hall of Fame. Um, how did you deal with that criticism? You know, looking at your numbers and knowing what you were doing day by day, season after season, how did you deal with that criticism? Well, we were, we were in contract negotiations. And uh, Mrs. Yawkey, and, and at the end of uh, the 91 season, had uh, offered me a contract, uh, a seven-year deal to stay in uh, Boston. So I was looking forward to signing that, and, and coincidentally, the first week in January of 92, uh, she slipped and fell in the tub and, and passed away. So when I got to spring training in 92, uh, John Harrington, Lou Gorman, and uh, uh, the Red Sox brass had taken the offer off the table. So we were negotiating through spring training, and, and Basically, the, the, the only offer that, that they had come up with was a year and an option. And it really wasn't uh, that big of a raise. And I was looking for something substantially more than a year and an option. And so we went through spring training, and, and uh, then the grumbling started in the paper that, that you know, we've got Scott Cooper, and, and I started off poorly and continued to play poorly. And... and so it just uh, snowballs itself into uh, to where the, the the fans of Boston that that sort of got on the side of the paper and 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 then eventually at the end of the season the Red Sox didn't pick up my option my uh, arbitration eligible 
for that uh, coming year, so that made me a free agent. And once that happened, uh, they had Scott Cooper to fall back on. So uh, I took my services and uh, tested the free agency waters. And the time you're granted free agency, October 26, 1992, Charlie Hayes was exposed by the Yankees in the expansion draft. He's taken by the Colorado Rockies. That set up uh, basically two teams that really had major interest in you, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees. Why Yankees over Dodgers? I wanted to stay in the American League. And uh, I wanted to stay on the East Coast uh, so my father could uh, stay up at night and watch games. And, and I was familiar with the American League. Didn't want to change leagues and, and have to learn new pitchers and things of that nature. So, uh, um, so that sort of made an easy decision to uh, become a Yankee. You know, it's interesting because, you know, tons of people always criticize George Steinbrenner going after this. But George always had a vision, and this is the most amazing thing. At the time of the signing, this is what George Steinbrenner said about Wade Boggs. I just got a hunch that maybe he's the best buy we've had in a long time. I think he'll hit 300 next year. I'm not prepared to believe that Wade Boggs isn't still Wade Boggs. George got it right because over the next five years, over 600 games with the New York Yankees, Wade Boggs hit 313, was an all-star four of those five seasons. What did uh, putting on, being part of a Yankee-Red Sox rivalry, then putting on the Yankee pinstripes, and then winning a world championship as a Yankee, what did being a Yankee mean to you? Well, it was, it was I, I had the, the best of both worlds. I got to play for two organizations that are so rich in history, and and going to New York and, and starting uh, the re- re- rebuilding process, basically. Uh, New York, were, they were sort of squandering in sixth and seventh place. And, and when I went over there, the, the, the mentality changed and, and sort of uh, started building players around like personalities. And, and the Spike Owens, the Jimmy Keys, the Paul O'Neills, and... and and mixing in the young guys, Derek Jeters, the Bernie Williams, the Jorge Posadas. And, and uh, so they started filling all the positions, and then we really took off in 94. And 95, we, we had the uh, run into the buzzsaw of uh, Randy Johnson in Seattle in 95. And, and then in 96, we wound up getting uh, Tino Martinez to take Don Mattingly's place. And, and then that's when... The, every piece of the puzzle fell into place and wound up winning a World Series that year. So um, it was uh, a tremendous enjoyable time that I had in, uh, in New York. Uh, I loved playing for the Yankees uh, as much as I loved playing for the Red Sox. I mean, it, it, uh, uh, like I said, I had the best of both worlds. If I have my memory right, you went through Stump Merrill to Buck Walter to Joe Torrey. What was the difference between all three of them, and how did that lead to the Yankees' success, bringing Joe Torre in? Uh, actually, I didn't have Stump Merrill. I had Buck Showalter the whole time. Uh, 93, 94, 95, I had Buck Showalter, and then Joe Torre, 96 and 97. So, um, but Buck's uh, a little field general. Uh, very preparedness uh, is probably his strong suit, uh, uh, Joe Torrey's more of a laid-back kind of let the guys go ahead and do their own thing. And uh, so that made it really easy because uh, we had so many veterans on that ball club. And we, we just police.
braced ourselves, and, and nothing really ever got out of hand. Speaking of, of policing yourself, uh, there's so many iconic moments when teams win World Series. And I think the image of you on a horse with a New York City police officer is probably at the top of the list for most people. So what led to that impromptu decision for you to get on top of that horse? And what is it like? You know, Yankees have just won the World Series. Everyone in Yankee Stadium is going crazy. And you're galloping on a horse around the entire stadium. What was? Could you even try and put that into words? Well, we, we uh, I was going nuts, and uh, <laughs> we were doing the dog pile on on the mound, and and we decided to uh, take a victory lap. And till this day, I've never looked at the video or gone back and really saw how I got up on this horse. And uh, next thing I know, I'm in center field on the back of a horse, and and not a big fan of horses, so. Um, um, yeah, it was one of those impromptu, uh, how in the heck did I get on the back of this horse kind of thing, and and riding around, a lot of pictures were taken, and, and uh, got to home plate, uh, got off the horse, uh, thanked the uh, police officer, and then uh, went into the... Uh, into the clubhouse for the uh, champagne fountain, and, uh, and that was uh, just absolutely spectacular. All right, we got a couple of non-baseball questions to close out with. Um, the first one is uh, Lord Palmerston or Pitt the Elder, which of the United Kingdoms is, was the greatest prime minister? Oh, that's a, it's not even a, a, a debate. Pit the elder. <laughs> uh, for those of you that really are, like said, why in the world did he just ask that question? It's because uh, Wade was one of the baseball players featured in the classic The Simpsons episode, Homer at the Bat. He's recruited as a ringer by Mr. Burns for the power plant softball team, only to get into a bar fight over which one of them were the United <laughs> Kingdom's greatest prime minister by Barney the, uh, the drunk. Uh, so which was a bigger thrill, being on The Simpsons or Cheers? Uh, probably Cheers. Uh, the Simpsons was just a voiceover and uh, did it in L.A. Uh, when we went out to play the Angels. But uh, actually uh, on set with, with the cast and doing uh, all the prep work and learning lines and going over various things and, and meeting everyone and, and sort, of, uh, sort of getting your feet wet in the industry and, and uh, voted one of the top episodes of all time for yep. Cheers. And, and uh, we had a we had a blast uh, doing that, and and uh, turned out great. Then yeah. there was the show that had the episode named after you. Well, that's that's it. Next. So you're getting there next, right? So three thousand hits in Major League Baseball puts you in a very elite group, but one hundred and seven beers—that's another whole level right. of elite. Comedian actor Charlie Day on the Tonight Show, while discussing the episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the one where the gang tries to recreate um, the day that you told them, um, he said that. He actually told you that the number is 107. And what I'm alluding to is 107 beers on the cross-country flight. And there's been different stories. One says it started from the time the game ended. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about how this has grown into legend. And more importantly... What's the real number? I don't even know if you could actually get a real number. But more two other questions. Were they all... 107, were they all the same brand of beer? And who brought in the cans for recycling? Well, it, it you know yes, the, the great thing about folklore and, and <laughs> stories and how you know they grow over time is is uh, everyone talking about it, and it's uh, you know one of those things that happened uh, uh, oh probably over 
25, 30 years ago, probably. <laughs> and uh, but uh, I, g- I gave the original number on uh, Psych, the uh, right. the comedy show. Right. So um, that's the original number. Uh, but uh, the the conversation that with Charlie Day was uh, over the time that uh, that I. The game ended, and uh, the time I got back to the hotel. So that was during the course of uh, not not all on the plane. So we can we can clarify that up. <laughs> still, so, and, still and, very and you didn't impressive. drive at any point. No, during no, this episode. I did not drive at any point. Uh, very impressive number. All right, um, two more questions, and we'll let you go. But we really appreciate the time you've given us tonight. As we mentioned before, Boston's not the most warm and fuzzy place to be a ball player. So, what did induction into the Red Sox Hall of Fame, and more importantly, May 26, 2017, the day your number was retired in a ceremony at Fenway Park, and the love that the fans showed you that day? What did that mean to you? Well, in my opinion, uh, Boston is a warm and fuzzy place to play. Um, you know, it's a great place to hit. Uh, the fans are very passionate about uh, the game. And uh, May 26 was, was the last piece of the puzzle that uh, I needed in my baseball career, and that was to have my number retired by the Boston Red Sox. And, and uh, it's one of those that uh, uh, I'm, I'm very humbled and uh, when someone says we're going to retire your number and no one has the opportunity to put that number on it, and you look up there with the likes of uh, Ted Williams and Carlton Fisk, Jim Rice, uh, Bobby Doerr, Joe Cronin, uh, all the greats that have ever played uh, uh, that are up there. And uh, it's uh, one of those that uh, I take a lot of pride in and and, uh, and the time that I spent in Boston. So uh, it was uh, very special. Lastly, this month you served as a fill-in color commentator for some of the Red Sox games played in Tampa and broadcast on New England Sports Network, working with play-by-play announcer Dave O'Brien. What was that experience like, and is it something you see yourself doing on a full-time basis going forward? Oh, absolutely, yeah. We're, uh, we're, we're discussing it with Nesson, and uh, I uh, had a great time. Uh, Dave O'Brien was wonderful, and uh, so it was... Uh, Great situation. I had Chris Sale, uh, so I had a lot of Randy Johnson stories to uh, to tell. Yeah, but uh, I like doing color. It uh, I have uh, uh, a lot of stories to tell and and uh, knowledgeable of of the game to the fact that uh, I can explain it. So that that uh, that helps immensely. Wade, we appreciate you sharing some of those stories with us tonight. We really appreciate it. And more importantly, we appreciate your time here as a New York Yankee. Lots of great memories and, of course, the World Series as well. So thanks so much, Wade. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Wade Boggs, Baseball Hall of Famer, World Champion, 328 Lifetime Hitter, 107 Beer, Cross Country Flyer.